for June 20th. She last wrote for Doctor Who with 1989's Survival. Now, Rona Monroe returns to Doctor Who with The Eaters of Light. Was it to our taste? Plus, we talked to Lisa Bowerman, who starred in Monroe's previous outing, and indulge in a little Chris Chibnall criminology on This Week in Time Travel. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. And I'm Melissa. Hey, everybody. So, we've got a lot happening this time. We go from no news to all of the news at once, and it's a little overwhelming, but I think we can power through it all. Yeah. Uh, you've made it to the Doctor Who experience, haven't you, Alyssa? I have. I've been there twice, um, both uh during Matt Smith's tenure as the Doctor, and then again when they revamped it for when Peter Capaldi was the Doctor. And I have loved it. I think it's one of just the greatest spots in Cardiff to be at. Well, uh, yeah, I had some vague plans to make it to the UK this year, but they kind of fell through. So I'm going to try and hit the Doctor Who experience next year, right? No, I have some really bad news for you, Chip. It's closing in September. They made it official. September 9th is it for the Doctor Who experience. I'm really sad about that. I thought it was such a great place for fans. Uh, there's an interactive experience, which the best time to go it, to the Doctor Who experience is when there's a group of kids that are going through it, and they just have the time of their lives. They go through and they are playing with everything in that interactive experience. They are fighting the weeping angels and the Daleks. They are searching for clues. They're talking with the doctor. They're piloting the TARDIS. They enjoy it so much. And the older fans really get into it too. I don't know who was squeeing harder on that last trip that I went to, the six-year-old girl or the 30-year-old man. They were both equally invested and excited about being on the TARDIS. It's just a wonderful, genuine, sweet, wholesome, wonderful place. I don't have enough great things to say about it. There's fun things you can walk through and see props and costumes. There's classic who, there's new who, there's one of the most amazing Doctor Who merch shops you will ever go through. It's really just a wonderful experience overall. And I'm really sad that it's going to be closing. Yeah. And I'm really sad that you said all these great things about a place that I'm never going to see. Thanks, Alyssa. Why don't you do the rest of this podcast? I'm going, I'm out of here. Oh, no, Chip, come back. Okay, okay, fine, I'm back. Uh, so let's talk about Big Finish a bit. Um, Yay! Big, Big Finish has been leaning in so hard on the new series now that they've been per given permission to get involved with it. And they've got Derek Jacoby back, and he's going to be the master again. He's going to be the war master again. They're doing a round of four stories from the Time War They've really been leaning into the Time War as well. And this is going to be the story that basically tells us what happened to the Master during the Time War before he decided, whoop, that's it. I'm out. Chameleon Arch. I, I'm now Professor Yana, and I'm this nice, doddering, uh, Hart and Aleska professor type. Um, I, I, I'm super excited about this. 
Yes, I think this is going to be absolutely amazing. I am so looking forward to it. I'm really behind on a lot of Big Finish that I want to be listening to, but uh, I may have to put things aside to really lean into the Derek Jacoby master stories because that's just going to be amazing. He was so phenomenal in Utopia. He was uh, such a great master considering that he was the master for a very, very tiny amount of time. He was, but he made such a deep impact on that. You know, there's always a few masters that people sort of leave off the list uh, when they are talking about the master and his various incarnations. Uh, Crispy Master sort of gets, you know, kind of ignored a little bit. Um, The master from the Eighth Doctor movie is a little bit more likely to get overlooked. Shalka's master, unfortunately, gets way more overlooked than he should be. But Derek Jacoby coming in, I think he, for as short a period of a time that he was on screen for it, he really just made an impact with that role. And it'll be really great to see more of him. Yep. Now, something that is happening this Saturday when uh, most of the world is going to be seeing uh, episode 11 of series 10 is going to be the Doctor Who Countdown concert, which is also going to be screening episode 11 with a live orchestra and featuring Stephen Moffat and Pearl Mackie. Yes, I think that will be absolutely brilliant. The soundtrack, the backing music for the past two seasons has really been incredible. I mean, we're going to get into this uh, latest episode in a moment and talk a little bit about the music behind it. But I think that whatever they've got coming up for this episode is going to be absolutely stunning. So that would be so much fun. And I'm really sad I don't get to go. Well, I don't get to go to the Doctor Who experience now. You know, it's not a perfect world. No, no. I guess we all get to miss out on great things. Mm. Speaking of the the episode, its director, friend of the show, Rachel Talalay, says that she wants to direct She-Hulk. That is in an interview with her when she's talking about Hollywood and female directors and superhero movies in, at Vice.com. We are totally down with a Rachel Talalay directed She-Hulk movie. I mean, I cannot throw my money at that quickly enough. Like, you thought I spent all my money on Wonder Woman? Like, wait until you give me a Rachel Talalay directed She-Hulk. I will really throw all of my money at that. Um, but I think it's also really worth uh, reading the entire interview um, because there's so many great things that she says about the power of fandom and fans and how that's shifted the landscape, uh, particularly for women directors. And I just want to read a quote from her from this article because I think that it really sort of drives things home. Fandoms are capable of being the most embracing, positive influences in people's lives. People find friendships and common ground through fandoms, and that's where the internet is so positive. I want to open the world up to more inclusivity, and part of that is letting women tell stories. I'm stupidly optimistic, even in this weird political time, that there are a lot of unbelievably amazing people in the world who embrace this. And just like, that that warms my heart, you know, seeing the the impact that fandom can have on this 
passive industry and how we can make it better for people. So I think you should read the entire interview um, also to see her vision of a She-Hulk movie, because that sounds amazing. And I want it now, please. (laughs) Well, we've had a week to digest the interview with and about Chris Chibnall and his approach to Doctor Who that was in the television magazine of the uh, Royal Television Society. Uh, The article is Chris Chibnall, the man who reinvented the cliffhanger, and it talks a lot about Broadchurch and all this other stuff. Uh, His frequent collaborator, director James Strong, is in the article, and and they get into his vision for Doctor Who to a certain extent, and that got picked up and reblogged or whatever you call it from Radio Times and other outlets. Uh, You had a chance to read that article just today, Alyssa. What do you... think about reading the tea leaves as it were let's do some chibnology here uh mm-hmm. what do, what do you think this article is telling us about what doctor who might look like in a year and a half well he does really seem to have an interest in telling emotional dramatic stories and if you've ever watched broadchurch that is really where his strength lies he really likes digging into people and what makes them tick um and so i think that we will definitely uh have more of an emphasis on arcs related to character growth and emotional growth um and seeing that play out more over an entire season um instead of having those be more self-contained um or more condensed in one sort of grand idea, like, am I a good man? I think that we'll have a little bit more of a longer term arc going on based off sort of what I see here. But then that's me extrapolating uh, from a lot of it. I think that he also has uh, an interesting focus on what the next Doctor Who should be like. Now, the original article, the interviewer, uh, adds a bit of his own uh, interpretation here and suggests that there may be a radical revamp on the way for Doctor Who. I wouldn't go quite so far. I think it's a little bit more conservative than that. I think that um, Chibnall does seem to recognize that they need something to bring the show back to the national consciousness, um, that Doctor Who has not been that sort of upfront show, that it's been a little bit taken for granted for it. Um, And so I think you can read into that, that there may be a more radical recasting of the Doctor, but I think that's a bit of a stretch. What was more interesting to me was sort of his general approach to fandom and fan speculation. Um, Because the way he discussed it was his job as a writer is to cut out the noise and rely on your instincts and your process. Now, I understand that to a certain extent. Lord knows that social media can sometimes be an echo chamber, and sometimes it's just the void. That is not fandom in general. I think what you find a lot in fandom is that there is a lot of constructive dialogue ongoing, and you have to sort the signal from the noise. There's always going to be a lot of noise, but there is going to be a current of relevant, insightful, thoughtful commentary and dialogue that is ongoing that needs to be focused on. Um, And I think that feedback and engagement from fans 
to writers about how what they are doing impacts them can be critical and important. And we have seen that in the back and forth that is ongoing already between creators and fandoms about what it is that people want to be seeing from their shows, what people want to be getting emotionally from their shows. And the best creators are the ones that listen to that feedback and go, you know what? I wasn't really aware of that perspective. I wasn't really aware of how that could be interpreted. I did not expect to see this type of reaction. One of the ones that stuck with me recently has been that um, the creators of The Handmaid's Tale have really been paying attention to the dialogue about race in that show and how they sort of rewrote um, the original book's approach to race. And they've really been paying attention to that. And it sounds like they may change their approach in season two because of that feedback. I think Chibnall could learn from that. There's a lot of noise in fandom, but there's thoughtful dialogue ongoing all the time. And he'll probably find that a lot of people have similar opinions to his, or at least opinions that are sort of in the range, but maybe have a little bit of commentary to say, try refocusing, try thinking about this, try thinking about how this impacts this marginalized section of fandom before you go there. Um, so it's got a raised eyebrow, but nothing too skeptical from me yet. Stephen Moffat did something similar early on, um, sort of provided a hint to fans that were paying attention uh, of what would be coming. He was a regular on the old Outpost Gallifrey, uh, mm-hmm. the former Gallifrey base, and somebody asked him if Russell T. Davis would ever participate in such a forum or get out there. And Moffat said, essentially, I don't think he would because he's making the show for a general audience. And when you're in this space, you have to and you're running the show, you you will be listening too closely to the hardcore fans. I would do the same thing in his position. And uh, several months later, he left those online fora. And then several months later, it was announced that he would be the new showrunner of uh, Doctor Who. It's a balancing act. I think that showrunners do have to be true to their muses, but if their muse is all that they're listening to, then there's trouble. Right. And there's a difference between listening to hardcore fans all the time who just sort of want fan wank and things like that and engaging with the fandom at large and not necessarily about plot and characters and are you going to bring this person back? You know, can we see more of the time war? I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking more about are we going to take a more aggressive uh, approach to recasting the doctor and break the mold a little bit from constantly having white men? Are we going to talk about particularly when you know, situation like Bill, where you're having a companion of color come into the TARDIS? Are we going to listen to uh, fans who are people of color about how you're representing them in the show, how you're representing issues related to race and discrimination and prejudice? Uh, And if you're going to be discussing sexuality, are you paying attention to marginalized fans who identify as some flavor of queer about how you're approaching that? Those are the types of conversations that I think creators should be keeping an eye on um, to see how people are reacting to their stories. That is the general audience. That's not just hardcore fans. You know, if you want to bring Doctor Who back into the national consciousness, you need to know what it's focused on. Good point. 
Well, that was a jam-packed pile of news. Um, guess what I did, Alyssa? What did you do, Chip? I'm a little I suspicious. No, suspicious of moi? Um, I I've talked... seen the episode title that you're going to go with this. You like puns. I know you. Well, this is not a pun. This is not a pun. This is an interview. When we come back, <gasps> I'm going to talk to somebody. I recorded an interview before the Eaters of Light aired with somebody who's had personal experience in Rona Monroe's worlds. Stick around. Rhoda Monroe's first story for Doctor Who was, of course, Survival, the last episode of the classic series. And to talk about Rona's previous experience with Doctor Who, as well as the breadth of her career, with me is actress and director Lisa Bowerman, who was under a lot of cat makeup for that <laughs> episode and is since well known for appearing on Casualty, for being a performer and director for Big Finish. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. Thank you very much, Chip, and good morning. Good morning. Um, it is 6 a.m. where I am, 11 a.m. where you are. I think you got the better end of the deal. I think I did. Thank you for that. How did you come across uh, the script? How, how did you get the gig for Survival? And what did you think of the script when you saw it? Did it line up with your sort of expectations for what Doctor Who was at the time? Well, actually, it's interesting you should say that. It, it really was a very last-minute job. Um, I happened to have worked with a director before. Um, this was obviously in the days before mobile phones. I was at a friend's house, got a call from my agent saying, do you wear contact lenses? And I thought, no, but I'm sure I can learn. Um, to cut an extremely long story short, um, I went in for the interview with uh, Alan Waring. Uh, I think he was more preoccupied by the fact that he wanted somebody who could ride. Um, obviously, the cheetah people, ironically, are on horseback. Um, but they are, of course, uh, cheetah human crosses. So we can't be that that literal, I think, in terms of their running speed. Anyway, to, um, to cut a long story short, I, I got the gig. Um, of course, at that point, Doctor Who wasn't really being very well served uh, in the schedules by the BBC. I think it, it's quite well recorded that the uh, the head of the BBC at the time, Michael Grade, was not a huge fan of the show. Um, it had been drained of money. It was going out on Thursday night opposite a, a very popular soap opera on the other side called Coronation Street. And uh, things were suffering. So I don't think I quite knew uh, what, uh, and this isn't meant to sound, you know, very dismissive, but, uh, you know, I didn't know what the quality of the script was going to be. Um, obviously, th there was constraints because I was playing a wild animal and, and you think, oh, it's just going to be a, a case of going around going rawr the whole time. Um, but I got the script and what struck me was uh, the themes, the dialogue, the erudition. It was, it was brilliantly realized. In fact, I mean, again, although I don't want to dismiss the final production because interestingly, over the years, it's been re-evaluated quite a lot by fans. I think at the time, everybody sort of dismissed it. But because of the constraints with budget and with production values and time and all the other things that go along uh, with with doing that production at that time, um, the actual fine detail of some of the original script, I don't think was fully realized in the final product. Um, it was an extremely, extremely good script. And... Um, what, what I think is interesting, and, and we may well be going on to it later, is the fact that when the series came back, um, Russell T. Davis picked up that 
um, sensibility that Rona had created in her uh, in her um, episode. Uh, in, sorry, in her storyline, uh, the, the urban setting, um, the fact that it explored uh, human nature. Actually, uh, that there was a lot to do with society at the time, um, which I think bears witness to the kind of place she'd been writing up until that point. Anyway. It certainly looks like, as as far as the episode's direction and things like that, except for except for some of the uh, costume effects, uh, <laughs> it certainly looks an awful lot like a modern series. But it reads like a modern series yeah. episode as well. Yeah. Um, for those of us in the U.S., Rona Monroe is not necessarily a household name, but she mm. didn't just sort of helicopter in to do Doctor Who and didn't do nothing afterwards. She's a very well-regarded uh, writer. Absolutely. And she is. I mean, she's worked for every medium, you know, theater, radio, uh, television and film. Um, she had an association uh, for, for a short time with Ken Loach, who's who's very well known in this country for very um, socially aware films, quite bleak films, actually. And and strangely, I, I think they fit together very well. There, there was a strange bleakness to to survival. I, I mean, it, the, the, I think it's say more by luck than good judgment. I think it's an irony that the the series at that point went out on that storyline. Um, certainly, in terms of the normal Doctor Who, it was a very different setting from the, the, the normal eccentricities that that series can throw at you. Certainly, in that in that stage. What are some of the other things that she's done? Well, there, I mean, there's a succession of of films uh, for Ken Loach. There's something recently, uh, well, relatively recently, that was directed by Antonia Bird, who is a, a very well known, um, sadly now departed di- director, who did a lot of very, very good, um, relevant films. I suppose you could call it. Um, uh, uh, more recently, I actually I, I, I didn't know much of Rona's work. I've got to be honest, apart from, you know for the obvious. But I went to see uh, a couple of years ago a succession of plays she she wrote called the James Plays, uh, which had a lot of parallels actually with uh, some of the Shakespeare histories, and it was covering that James the first, second, and third of Scotland, and it was absolutely brilliantly written. I went to see all three plays on the same day and it just shows you as as a playwright i mean she's she's as as good as you get actually and the, the fact recently that i that i've heard she's coming back to um write an episode of the current doctor who i think is terrifically good news what makes what she did for the classic series so relevant today but in terms of the new series i i think that mood that she picked up in survival um is now even more suited to the new series than it was at the, at the beginning when Russell brought it back again. Um, I think it's good to have some, somebody who is coming back. Maybe, I mean, I don't know anything about, about uh, how it's going to go, but wait, maybe she'll be picking up the same themes, the same sort of um, mood that she created, whether it's urban, whether it's purely sci-fi, who knows? I mean, I know she likes Doctor Who. Uh, the the really strange thing is, I'd, I'd never met Rona. Uh, when I went to see the James plays, I went with a friend and I said, do you, do you know what Rona looks like? And she said, yes. She said, well, I said, can you point her out to me if you see her? And as it happened, she did see her and spot her just at the back of the auditorium between one of the shows. And I, I don't normally do this, but I was quite bold and I went up to her and basically to congratulate her for the plays, but also to say... Um, uh, actually, I was in your Doctor Who, and she she was amazed and very flattering, and said I didn't look old enough. Mind you, she wouldn't have known under that fur anyway. So, <laughs> 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 um, 
And we had this conversation and I said, well, you know, what a terrific script it had been. And she says, oh, you know, she says, were you eaten by a cheetah? I said, no, I actually was the cheetah. And she gave me the hugest hug and said, thank you so much. It was just as I wanted. I'm not convinced it was probably just as she wanted, but it was very nice to be able to make that contact with her and, and just to say thank you. Crikey, it's a, a job that's never gone away from my point of view. But in terms of her writing for the new series, I think she's a perfect fit. I think it will be uh, intelligently written. I don't think it will patronise the audience. And I, I hope it, it remains as is on the page. I, I think a, a lot of writers suffer from fantastic scripts adapted to within an inch of their life for somebody's other, somebody other's sensibilities. So um, I really hope that she's been given as much latitude as she, as she liked. Lisa Bowerman, thank you so much for dropping in to talk about Rona Monroe. Well, thank you. I hope that was useful. <laughs> thank you. Chip, that was an amazing interview with Lisa, and I am so jealous that you got to do that. Uh, I just grinned the entire time listening to that. But let's dive in now to my real happy moment from this past week. Rona Monroe came back and she blessed upon us this incredible episode, The Eaters of Light. Chip, what did you think about this? Uh, say, don't bury the lead there, Alyssa. What do you? I mean, <laughs> it's okay to tell people what you thought about it early on in the uh, review. I really liked it too. I have I have some quibbles with it, and we'll get to them. But I love the feel of it. I love the I love the dialogue. I love um, the strength of Bill's character. Um, I you know essentially essentially starting out vulnerable with the Roman soldiers and then becoming their de facto leader, helping them uh, to rise up and um, take action. Having only recently watched Survival for the first time, uh, I was immediately taken with how fresh and engaging and non-80s Doctor Who Survival felt like. And the characters just leapt off the screen for me. Um, it, it, I loved this episode quite a lot. Yeah, I really thought that there's similar themes a little bit between survival and Doctor Who. You know, uh, Rona Monroe really digs into human nature um, and how people act in groups um, and how individuals work within those groups. Um, and there's a similar element here in that these people are all fighting for their existence. They're fighting for their survival. And how they're going to do that is the critical question here. Are they going to rely on their better natures and cooperate with each other uh, in order to defeat this monster and send it back to this alternate dimension where it comes from, or are they going to continue tearing themselves apart? Are they going to continue fighting? Are they going to continue their bitter war until no one is left? And there's a lot of interesting discussions uh, in here about empires and conquerors and the people who sort of get trampled underneath that. You know, the Roman soldiers here are clearly the ones in the wrong initially. You know, they're invading Scotland. They're 
you know, sending in highly trained soldiers essentially to kill farmers. But you also have Carr, who's not entirely innocent here either. She was supposed to keep this terrible beast confined to its alternate dimension. She let it loose upon her enemies and they were slaughtered horribly, awfully, painfully. And now it threatens the entire existence of the world. You know, this is not something that will just kill the Roman soldiers and then she can send it back easily. Um, So uh, it really leaned into, they're all basically kids here. They're trying to live and survive the best way that they can, but they're making mistakes along the way and how they rise to those um, and how they try to defeat those challenges uh, in ways that preserves their humanity is what defines them. Mm-hmm. Granddad is 18. Granddad is 18. Like, you know, it's one of those things that drives home for you that people in these conflicts are really, really young. Like, my God, I used to think 18-year-olds were just the most adult people in the world. And now I'm 25 looking down at these children going, oh, my God, you're babies. You are fetuses. <laughs> Never identified with a doctor more than he looked at cards like you are a fetus. Don't tell me you killed all of those soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the mood of this episode is so good. Uh, the, 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 the sets, the cairns, the, the pipes in the background, the Pictish face paint. Uh, I even appreciated the humor of uh, the doctor coming out of the cairn, and there's Nardole gone native all, all, already. Um, and I was grateful that he'd gotten out of the stupid bathrobe by the end of the episode, that's for sure. Um, but um, but the mood of the episode, the dialogue, as I said, it's not a complicated timey-wimey or twisted story. The plot is straightforward, but Rona puts in so much around the edges of it, as you just said. Um, but just like survival, where those 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 cat suits were so unnecessary, the script envisioned subtle stuff for the cheetah people. Um, 80s uh, Doctor Who is many things. Subtle is not one of them. Right. Well, this time around the uh, this time around the the the, the big finale, the CGI for the beast and the green screen work with the portal and all that stuff just didn't her script was let down by the production values there. And that, that is this a thing? Is Rona going to come back in five or 10 years and uh, we're going to be watching 3D holographic Doctor Who and all of a sudden it's going to go low res and everything's going to be blocky? I mean, is is that the tradition for a Rona Monroe script? Oh, I I feel kind of bad, but I have to disagree with you. I didn't feel really let down by the production values of that. I like I can see room for improvement, but for the budget that they're working with here, I thought the beast looked magnificent. I thought that the portal looked mostly okay. You know, I think I would have envisioned it a little differently. Like it definitely sticks out um, as being a very Doctor Who thing um, and not necessarily, it doesn't blend in with the surrounding environment very well. And maybe it's not meant to, um, but uh, it didn't throw me out of the story at all. I I liked it. Execution of visual effects and such like that aside, uh, getting back to the characters, uh, Bill. Mm-hmm. She just stood out in this episode uh, from B 
being willing to stand up and challenge the doctor on how well he knows history and saying that she could know better than him. Like that takes a fair amount of chutzpah. And I appreciated that. Um, And how she transitions from being completely just out of her element. Like, you know, she's been chased uh, by an angry Scottish teenager, and then she's been captured by Romans, and then she's seen one of them horribly killed in front of her and nearly killed herself. And just she got, herself She back got attacked up by a that. space squid. She got attacked by a space squid. With, oh, with that was a good effect. I liked the monsters. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm just saying that, you know, she had a rough day. She did. She really did have a rough day. And and to still pick herself up after all of that and say, you know what? The doctor isn't here yet, but I'm pretty sure I know how to get to him. I'm just going to walk straight into danger. Just like that line. That's it. That's the show. Let's find the most dangerous spot and walk directly into it. That's which, all that Doctor Who is. <laughs> which is also the doctor's own strategy. Uh, after he realizes what they're up against, then Nardole's like, wait, shouldn't we be looking for Bill? No, we're going into the most dangerous place because that is either where uh, Bill is and we need to rescue her or she's not there, which means she's much safer than where we're going to be. Um, yeah. Doctor logic is twisted logic, but it's fun logic. It is. It is does follow through eventually to a good point. Uh, but, you know, Rona really gets these characters. You know, she gets Bill and the things that are going to be driving her and the way that Bill's sort of adapting to this past season and realizing the Doctor's not this hero to be, you know, worshipped. The Doctor is essentially a very tall, angry toddler who needs to occasionally be protected from rocking straight into danger. And she gets this doctor, you know, like really gets into what it is that makes him tick and the sort of casual, careless way that he goes, of course, I will condemn myself to an eternity of fighting this monster uh, until the sun dies and I will just die here with it. Um, And I just thought she did an amazing job. Mm hmm. Um I really like the doctor in this one. This is the doctor in my head. I've uh, sort of quibbled over the last couple of years about, okay, is is the doctor wacky Tom Baker? Is the doctor grumpy third doctor? Is he super grumpy all in a class by himself? Twelfth doctor. He's real in this episode, but he is not needlessly cruel he's not like negging clara or anything like that he is when he faces car and he basically tells her to grow up he's not putting her down he's not being mean to her as he sometimes was in series eight he's providing tough love yeah i mean he's definitely a bit mean at first and you know he's very much this is a child who's holding me captive and i do not believe anything that they are telling me about how this small angry teenager defeated 5,000 Roman soldiers the way that they were all killed. But he eventually gets to her emotional state. He realizes what has gone on here, that she has released this awful monster that she was responsible for keeping locked up 
because she just suffered through this incredible, awful trauma of losing everything that she loves. And he understands, but he doesn't make allowances for it. It's not a justification at all. He makes her really understand what she has done, how much she has put the world at risk. Um, and it's a good push. You know, I think that their back and forth was was really interesting. You know, there's this young girl that he's almost mentoring in a very doctorish kind of way of, you have done something. We cannot wallow in it. We need to act now or more people will die. That I thought was a really interesting thing. And then that brilliant moment where both he and Bill get that uh, sort of real talk uh, on when the Picts and the Romans face each other in the and 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 things are about to break out and basically she and the Doctor both tell them to grow up, all of them. It's it's yep. it's great. This is what I want from Bill. This is the prototypical modern Doctor Who companion who sort of rises up to uh, within herself and develops her own moral authority. Um, And it's a joy to watch. It is. You know, I think one of my quibbles, and this isn't particularly to Rona Munro's episode because um, there's plenty of people with things to do, is that I'd like Bill to have a little bit more of an active role um, in the episodes that she has been in because um, it's been a lot of moving around and having somebody else do things. You know, I think as much as I was not a terribly big fan of the uh, Monk's arc, you know, the last episode, the resolution of it all comes down to her. Um, But she has been a little bit pushed to the side for a lot of other episodes so that other people can do amazing things and bring things to a resolution. Um, I did like that Carr was the one who took responsibility for her actions this episode and stepped up to resolve it, that she was not going to contend the doctor to fight on her behalf for an eternity uh, to fight this monster that she released on the world, Um, that she stepped up and led a charge of Roman soldiers to come in and support her fight there. Um, And, Uh, I thought that was a sort of really interesting touch that they did with the modern Scotland bits about how the echoes of this are still being felt through the world, that there are still people who can hear the songs that they are playing as they are fighting these monsters for eternity, that there are still wars being fought uh, in this alternate dimension to keep our world safe uh, and that the crows are still remembering her. Um, I thought that moment could have gone into Sappy very quickly, uh, but it was done uh, very well, I thought. I would definitely agree. Uh, We also had another Missy sighting. We did. Big Missy sighting, although... Every reference that was worked in, I thought, about the vault and about Missy felt almost ADR'd in up to that point. Um, And then I figure that Stephen Moffat probably wrote the entire final scene of the episode. It definitely felt Moffat-ish. I liked everything that Missy was in in this episode. Uh, I'm an absolute trash fan with 
doctor master friend relationship like you put me in season eight of classic doctor who which is just if you haven't seen it an entire season of delgado's master uh and the third doctor just like bickering endlessly like two old married people just constantly arguing and you see this friendship that's soured kind of in a terrible way um and that is everything that I love in the relationship between the doctor and the master. And it's getting back into that, you know, and in a really good way, you know, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm excited to see Sim come back. John Sim come back in, uh, one episode, next episode, he's here. But, uh, I did not get that same feeling from watching his interaction with the 10th Doctor, that this was a friendship gone sour um, at some point. It was a little bit like, you know, watching your friend get outrageously drunk and you're trying to corral them into a cab and send them home kind of relationship. Um, the Miss, uh, The Doctor and Missy have a history. They have issues that they are working out. And there's a logical side of my brain that goes... Yeah, Missy isn't serious about this. This is absolutely a ploy to earn her freedom back. And then there's the trash fan in me that's going, oh my gosh, maybe this is real. Maybe they're going to be friends of the sort again. Also, it's very Shalka-ish of just like space married couple. She's locked into the TARDIS. She can't leave. She's stuck there. She's doing maintenance on the TARDIS because the doctor won't do it. Just, I'm an absolute trash fan in this regard and I will go sit in my trash can and be very happy with it but I loved this entire section of the episode well there are trash fans and there are trash fans did you see Rachel Stott's artwork posted on Monday Rachel Stott is a cruel human being and should not be allowed to give us these feels I am going to make you describe the artwork for the listener you're a terrible person Chip you're almost as bad as Rachel Rachel drew a lovingly detailed and colored scene of Missy and the Doctor, presumably at some point during the Time War, because they are wearing armor that has the seal of Rassilon on it, and the Doctor is dead, and Missy is cradling his dead body, and Rachel Stott is an awful human being who gives me terrible feels. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, that ship is sailing proud in certain corners of the internet. It absolutely is, and I love it. <laughs> eaters of light really good episode really good episode apparently almost nobody watched it on saturday because the weather was great and tv was down and this was the lowest rated episode in doctor who history and that's just not fair that's just absolutely not fair to this episode I think this is definitely going to be one of those episodes that is beloved by people that watch it. Um, you know, I think that it has a really good emotional heart to it. And I have to be honest, I did not watch it when it premiered. I bought the episode on iTunes yesterday because I spent all weekend moving. Uh, so I did not have an hour on Saturday to be able to sit down and watch this episode and have the proper feelings about it. Um, so I I am recording this podcast amidst pile of boxes. Um, I had to pull this out of a box 30 minutes ago so we could record this podcast. So I'm as guilty as the next person. I did not watch this on Saturday, but I really loved it. And I feel bad. So do, so did I. And I think that uh, it's a very good return to form for, well, not the return to form. This is their, it's a return to Doctor Who in the first place for Rona Monroe. Uh, welcome yes. back. We'd like you to come back, Rona. Please? This week on the Incomparable Network... K-1. 
Captain Sisko and Captain Kirk cross over for the DS9 episode Trials and Tribulations on Random Trek. Dan Morin makes poor Lex Friedman watch for the very first time Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, on Not Playing. And for another take on time travel, on The Incomparable, Jason and the team talk about the episodic adventure game Life is Strange. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Next week, it's the final two-parter. And the promo pics are out, and John Sims' costume is on point. Oh, I meant to say this during the uh, recording. I'm finally on Team Hoodie. Now you're on Team Hoodie? It's this a little episode, bit late for this. It's I'm, a little I, bit late for this, Chip. He finally got me. He finally got me there. <sighs> Chip, we have like, what, three more stories with Peter Capaldi coming up and you are only now on Team Hoodie? I guess better late than never, but still, go sit in the corner. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Would you do the outros while I'm going being abashed? Yes. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWho this week. You can find Chip when he's in his corner of shame at numeral two minute time lord. I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And you can look for us on Facebook too. You can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of The Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>